0: Today we're going to talk about Mulan and feminism. Why don't you two introduce yourselves?
1: My name is Ray. I'm a program associate at the Wilson Center, which is a think tank in Washington, D.C.
2: I am Xiran. I'm a recent university graduate. I have a book deal, I guess. Iron Widow. It's a Pacific Rim meets The Handmaid's Tale retelling of China's only female emperor. It's coming out next year. I, I post history tidbits on the internet, but it's mostly non-serious because I'm not an academic. Um, I just like... 800-year-old cat poems, I guess.
0: (laughs) Ostensibly, we're going to talk about Mulan. Sierra, why don't you you kick us off? What were your first impressions?
2: I knew that movie was trouble, like, two minutes in, when it started being like, oh, if you had a daughter whose chi was so strong, would you tell her that only sons could wield chi? And I was like, oh, (laughs) no. What did they spin chi into? Because like she is just something like in traditional Chinese medicine. It's just like the life force that goes through everyone. And then in the movie, they made made it like some sort of like the force kind of supernatural thing. And it also like they made it gendered for no reason. While Chinese culture has enough misogyny, we didn't need this like addition. (laughs) From the four white screenwriters, by the way, this movie has a white director, white screenwriters, and a white costume designer. And it was just like... Disney said that they wanted to produce um, a more faithful adaptation to The Ballad of Mulan, the original folk story. And that's why they removed all the iconic songs and all the fun about the cartoon Mulan. And uh, if you have like <laughs> white people producing that movie, it just does not feel sincere to me.
0: Yeah, and the irony of that comment, of course, is like, never has there been more money and talent into costume design and set design and in the tens you know hundreds of billions of dollars that tencent and ig and, and what have you are pouring into these sorts of costume drama
2: yeah no exactly and pink hollywood is them like they paid for this white costume designer to travel around the european museums with the looted chinese artifacts and then china to soak up the culture when they could have just hired someone with who like grew up in that culture and doesn't need to be paid to be sent on vacations and stuff so it's baffling they like made their jobs harder for themselves
1: the sort of impression that it left on me was kind of like how disney conceptualizes china at epcot which is one of their theme parks that sort of showcases different cultures around the world but in a superficial way like really focusing on the aesthetics and the architecture so i think that was what I felt like in the movie, sort of going off the bat. I've watched a couple of other Disney's live action films and mostly my assumption was that they were going to focus more on how it looked than doing anything super groundbreaking. However, like the, the politics of it really like spun out in a kind of interesting direction in that the depiction of China really emphasized defending the emperor, defending the Silk Road which was not something that I think was a really big theme in the 1998 film. And so that, from a political perspective, was really interesting given the role of the Silk Road in China's current real political stakes. The and Road Initiative by Chinese government projects ha- are, have been going on since I think they kicked it into high gear 2017 or so. And not to make too much out of, how it works in the movie but there you see this conscientious effort to try emphasis on try to reach out to Chinese markets and Chinese audiences but the points that I assume will really fall short with that audience is like Shiran just said the concept of qi is something that I don't think American or Chinese audiences are really going to get. And the concept of sort of filial piety is also something that's not really depicted in a way that makes sense to Chinese viewers or American viewers, certainly not the viewers that I'm seeing react to this film. Yeah,
0: So let's come back to filial piety in a second. But it's interesting you say that, Ray, and thinking about like the timeline of this script in the movie, it's almost like some Americans were reading English language think tank reports about China and like trying to do something that would seem nice like in this circa 2017. And the the whole vision of this as foreigners trying to make like off-brand CGTN content, really, uh, especially on the political side in the way uh, talking about this emperor as like someone you have to follow no matter what, is ham-fisted even for domestic Chinese movies um, that do this sort of propaganda do it a few degrees away. It isn't this in your face.
1: No, and I think they definitely allow for a slightly more sort of character arc development, uh, whereas I think that the, the the narrative for 2020 Mulan really just, it felt like they were trying to check boxes off of a checklist versus actually yeah. stitch together a sort of compelling narrative for their protagonist which that's that's one of one the things that yeah and I, I know that there were certain things that you know certainly Chinese audiences and maybe some diaspora viewers found off like too much slapstick weird sense of humor about 1998 but they did try putting together a character arc for their main character
2: yeah I think um the decision to make Mulan have essentially superpowers it was just a very baffling one and I think it ties into like they thought that this whole idea of like oriental mysticism like there's some inherent magic about Asian people so they had to like they they hand fist that that in for no reason whatsoever and it like it killed her arc because then she starts off as this like great warrior already so like in the training montage you, you felt like she does not struggle with anything and then she's just like automatically better than everyone and then the entire message of the movie changes from the cartoon because in the cartoon like she worked to be a great warrior using her smarts and like hard work and then in this movie it's just like oh the message becomes great people shouldn't have to hide the fact that they're great and i was just like why it's, it's questionable
0: Shiran, what was your take on the relationship between mulan and the father and the emperor
2: I don't think the father did enough to like redeem himself in Mulan's eyes because I think in the cartoon you could tell that like the dad still cares about her and loves her despite being a girl I guess. But in the movies he still says oh like I'm blessed to have two daughters but it's still like her, her, his attitude still felt like very dismissive throughout the movie and then especially after the scene where like it was such a powerful scene in the cartoon where after she leaves and then the father like tries to go chase her and then he falls down in the rain and that was just like a very emotional thing and then in the movie that decision scene of her leaving just had no emotional impact whatsoever because like the parents they get up in the morning they find out she's gone and then they're just like they're immediately just like um oh we can't tell this to anyone and then they just it cuts away from them there and they basically don't appear again until the end so i didn't feel any bond between her and her family which made it very weird for her to be like rewarded for her devotion to her family at the end i guess like the mere act of going in her father's place is like um being devoted to your family but still i didn't feel any connection between her and her family
1: i actually watched a little bit of the 1998 move on after I finished watching the 2020 version. And you can see the sort of detail that went into that went establishing into what she inherited from her family, especially her grandmother. I am very cross. that They wrote the grandmother out of the movie. I yeah. like wrote
2: out all the things that made the cartoon fun. Yeah. And I don't and, understand why.
1: And, and frankly, there's nothing like off about a grandmother that does not care anymore and just does whatever she wants because old people do that but she she i think her sense of thinking unconventionally is something that Mulan picks up on and it makes sense for her character with her father the idea of hedging your bets sometimes triumphing in adversity and when she leaves i remember the dad saying if we tell if we uh, go after her she will definitely die so the idea of feeling really protective towards her I think it makes the sort of familial relationship more convincing than like a daughter as a sort of vessel for whatever like wise lessons or like things you like just telling her what you want her to be and that's it, which is what it felt like.
2: I also felt like there was a weird relationship between Mulan and the government and the emperor and like I heard that like the CCP tampered with this script and there were places where you could feel it because... There was one, like, really especially, like, basically disgusting scene where the enemy witch, played by Gong Li, she tells Mulan, hey, join me, and we can, like, go take power together. And then Mulan's like, no, I know my place, and my place is to serve the emperor. And then, well, I'm
0: thinking about, I imagine, like, there's pushback on all the scripts, but I feel mm-hmm. like the domestic producers just have a better sense of where they can push back. And every edit Disney got, they were like, yes, sir, can I please have another
2: Yeah, and I think another weird thing was like Mulan was essentially trying to convince the witch that as long as she is loyal to the emperor, then like people are going to accept her for what she is. So the message became like, oh, you should out yourself to your oppressors, which I found to be very strange.
1: Yeah, what are? I was really curious going into this. Oh, they made Gong Li a witch. There wasn't a witch. Which I think a lot of times when I was telling people about this movie, there's no witch in Mulan. What is this?
2: And I don't know. There was. Yeah, just honestly, like her entire character gave me pauses in the trailer because in the trailer there was there was like uh, they were like um there's a witch. I was like witch. China doesn't have witches. And I think a witch is such a like charged word. It invokes a very specific idea which does not exist in Chinese culture. So even if they wanted to say like woman who does magic, they could have used another word such as like shamaness or soothsayer. Is that how you say it? I don't know. Mm-hmm. But like another a word that doesn't invoke like the ideal of the Western witch. But then I went into the movie and I realized oh the ideal of a Western witch is exactly what they went for. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Yeah, for a lot of Chinese stories like trickster women who do magic is more like fox spirits or something like that, or one of mm-hmm. the demons that you would have in Journey to the West, but witches not so much.
0: So are we ready for Xinjiang? Northwest China as, okay. as it's referred to. Okay. Let's
1: go. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I I'd like to discuss the timeline of the film and how it relates to policy. So it was greenlit in 2015. And I think they filmed in 2017 or so. But by 2017, we were already seeing a lot of testimony and some reporting on the prisons that were being constructed in Xinjiang, including in the area of Xinjiang, the Xinjiang Uyghur autonomous regions that the filmmakers credited in the film later on. And so, as people started to look at this region, there were actually some prisons, relocation camps that were constructed, I think, about seven kilometers from where they filmed the dunes, which I think are actually pretty uh, well known as a site in xinjiang disney wasn't going to be able to bring a crew and equipment for a big box movie into uh china any place in china without any type of permission but in going into xinjiang in 2017 you were going to need to pass a lot of security checkpoints so this was a conscientious choice on their part i was listening to another podcast called time to say goodbye where their panel was discussing there had to be this level of cooperation and tacit all right this is just how they govern from the part of disney corporate that had to have happened in order for them to do the film work that they did
2: so like basically disney just like shadily ignored all the atrocities going on huh
1: i mean like The position that I think Hollywood has always tried to toe was, oh, we're not necessarily a political actor. And for Disney, their interests in China are pretty extensive. Disney even runs an English training course that's like half advertising it, where they use Disney characters to teach children English. In addition, they have parks in Shanghai, Hong Kong, they've relied extensively on the China box office. And so these frankly very capitalistic interests have really shaped how Disney's approached different types of politics and their sort of aversion to getting sort of really vocal on uh, Chinese politics. When I think Life Fei posted on Chinese social media, like, I support the Hong Kong police. I I think there was a part after, it's like, you can dislike me if you want, or something like that. Uh, Disney didn't say anything, even though at that point, she had already been cast as Mulan. Uh, Donnie Yen's also been very pro-Hong Kong police, but throughout the whole process, like, Disney has been very hands-off when it came to, sort of, Chinese politics, and how it may have tangentially crossed over with the movie. But... The credits bit where they thank different local governments in Xinjiang, I think, puts the ball more in Disney's court than any um, of their actors. And this is why I think criticism on that level is going to be a little bit harder for them to ignore. I, I, I look at technology companies and their relationships with China. And I think that they tend to be characterized by how they interact with China when they think that there are profit opportunities, or there's an opportunity to reach markets. But the mismatch here is that right now, China and the United States are in a period where diplomatic relations are not good. And we don't know when diplomatic relations will improve. And what this does to businesses is businesses kind of pivot. For tech, this means that they are suddenly very concerned about Chinese security threats, and will say so when they're testifying on uh, Capitol Hill. But for Hollywood, it's going to be more complicated because they still have that market access for those that can still clear Chinese censorship. And for Disney, after, I think, seven years in Tibet, and which I think actually came out right before the Mulan 1998 cartoon, they have been trying to do whatever they can to fence it for as long as possible.
0: Hiron, what are some of the movies that should be made?
2: Oh, man. You mean by, like, Disney?
0: Or, I I don't know. I just want to hear you pitch screenplay ideas for 20 minutes, but maybe we should should probably make it relevant. So, like, what is the sort of U.S.-China production collaboration... Involving Chinese actors and Chinese content that you think is a, the sto- like a story worth telling for for this moment?
2: I would love it if they adapted my book. As for stories, I think I think that possibly Hollywood could do an adaptation of the Opium Wars, but I don't really trust them to do that. Not after like the shit they pulled with Marco Polo. That was just gross. Oh god, <laughs> I'm
1: surprised that Hollywood hasn't taken more of a hack at Journey to the West yet, given that adaptations of it have been like the sort of bread and butter for uh fantasy pop culture in China but and and, yeah and uh, I guess the closest thing they had was the Hollywood's attempt at Dragon Ball Z which was very bad
2: no exactly I think about all the stories that I would like Hollywood to adapt but then every time I just think to myself you know what, I don't trust them to do this. Ideally, I would like a big-budget adaptation of The Warring States and the story of the first emperor of China, because it's just epic.
0: So, feminism in modern China. Let's go.
1: Okay. When we think about how Mulan really factors into feminism and how women are seeing themselves in modern China, intellectually, the movie and the sort of writing behind it I don't think it really gets into the issues that they're facing, whether it's the stress of work-life balance, the issues of really being undermined. Oftentimes, like the sort of inequalities of women being expected to do clerical work in a workspace or women expecting to, expected to like look a certain part. Alibaba, which is a giant tech firm in China, I think came under fire for featuring, showcasing, oh, we have such good looking women workers in a job ad. And so this is modern day China, but there's not, like, there are certain convergence points to the sort of gripes and grievances that women have that can play out in a a film like Mulan where they have, that, that they might connect to. But given the sort of general kind of over seriousness of how disney approached this i think it was definitely a missed opportunity to connect to chinese women and the real issues that they're dealing with in favor of something that seemed like seemed more quote unquote chinese but not actually chinese
2: a criticism that i've seen a lot in, on the Chinese review side of this movie is that it's a bad movie because it's a feminist movie like feminism is a straight up a bad word in China in a lot of spaces which is a lot to unpack there mm-hmm. but then like they call chan like woman punching or like woman fisting but woman fisting sounds wrong in English. Yeah but like they use it as an insult yeah. and then so like say even anything about gender dynamics, like someone pops up and be like, Oh, you're a feminist. So they, they make that out to be a bad word. And so I think, so they, their attitude is that this movie is bad because it's a movie that promotes feminism.
1: Yeah. There was a clip, I think, going around where Jet Li and his daughters were being um, interviewed on a red carpet and the daughter's, oh, I like this movie because it it's an opportunity to about feminism. And then he cuts in and is like, oh, it's about loyalty to family. And you could see her sort of side eyeing her dad. Yeah. I stand
2: his daughter, okay. But yeah, like I stand Lee's daughter for like side eyeing her dad because like probably Jetli was like, oh, this this isn't a movie about feminism. is a movie about loyalty because <laughs> like. Yeah there's a stigma around feminism and if you think about it like why why is there a stigma about feminism i think like the psychological root of that is like anti-feminist people thinking oh women don't deserve all these things that they're asking for what the hell
1: the scholar alita hong fincher has written about this in her two books but essentially that feminism and other types of civil society organizing, so labor unions, uh, LGBT. As of late, the government has also gotten really leery about people sort of congregating in groups to organize, because if it's not necessarily something that's really, really politically safe and politically centers the government, then they sort of start assessing the risk factor in those types of, you know, groups, communities, organize, organizing efforts. So uh, feminism, even though on the surface level, it shouldn't cross over with politically sensitive issues. A lot of things are becoming politically sensitive issues within China.
2: Which is just so annoying. Because, like, imagine, like, trying that hard to control your people. It just, like, it reeks of insecurity to me. Like, why are why are you, like, so insecure in your role that you have to do this and, like, make people resent you more? It seems counterproductive. A giant shift in modern Chinese society is that women are like not only expected to have children and like take care of the children they're also like it's not cool to be taken care of by men anymore so like you can't even expect to be a stay-at-home mom because like you're looked down upon Mm -hmm. and you're like oh then you're only using this guy for his money Mm -hmm. and so like women are expected to take on double burdens and men are not they're still unwilling to take on the burden of child rearing There is so much bitterness. You know how in China, uh, women won't even consider marriage unless the guy has a cow. Uh, Not a cow. That is like several hundred years ago. But she won't even consider marriage unless the guy has a car and like real estate that he owns. And I Uh, see so much bit toward that like basic standard in men. And which is just like, well, well, why are you so entitled that you think that you could have a wife and have a family if you don't even have that basic level of financial security? What the hell? Yeah, um,
1: yeah. property ownership for women, I think, is kind of actually a tricky subject. It's actually quite hard for women to get their names on deeds for houses uh, and apartments. I I didn't know that until I had read the book Leftover Women. I think these really, really sort of annoying-sounding Like standards or social issues, um, oftentimes they can have sort of structural roots. So, um, you know, pay inequality between men and women, um, the sort of how the different expectations in marriage, um, people's tendency to try to assess the class of potential partners. Um, There's a lot of like these sort of very gendered economic dynamics that in turn form these um, these these stigmas and ultimately loop back into the problems that feminism is facing.
2: Yeah, what I think is also a big issue is just um, the issue of, like, women taking maternity leave, and that seriously affects their careers because companies don't want to hire a woman only for her to, like, go on maternity leave for several months and for this reason i think uh, way back when china opened the one child policy to a two child policy there were a lot of companies that were like like there was something like suddenly all of their entire like female workforce of like child birthing age was like a potential potential person who would like have to take a maternity leave and companies were very like unhappy about that so they like started hiring less women
0: who's your favorite maybe like top three favorite women from chinese history from over 500 years ago
2: from over 500 years ago okay so my top favorite chinese um woman it's not Wu Zetian. it's um queen dowager xuan of the qing dynasty she was i think the first emperor's great 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 grandmother and i didn't like her because she was um she like used her sexuality as a weapon so like back then she was a kingdom on the very west of china and it, it was trying to expand into the central plains, but it also like faced pressure from behind it from like a nomad tribe called the Quan Rong. And then so um, Queen Dowager, her son was like the king of Qing at the time, and then so she was just like, "I got this." And so she seduced the leader of the Quan Rong tribe. She had two kids with him, and then she, they were like they had an affair. Well, it's not an affair; her husband's dead, but they had a relationship for like over twenty years. And then she used that relationship to keep the tyrant off Qing's back the entire time, so Qing could go like, um, head like fight more into the Central Plains. And then twenty years later, when the time was right, she did not hesitate in ordering him killed, and also like she ordered the two children that he she had with him killed, and then she destroyed the entire tribe. So that was just like, damn, she did not give a shit about what anybody thought of her and then she used like every advantage she had to like improve Jing and then like consolidate her son's rule and it was just like a she's a very impressive woman to me okay yeah yeah. so second is is of course Wu Zetian and then like her, her story is too long to tell in a podcast but the most impressive thing about her is that she went through two harem battles like she was um the concubine of Emperor Taizong of Tang. He's like considered the greatest Chinese emperor or whatever. Um she was like his concubine at age 14 and then it went nowhere because like their age difference was like too great and then I don't think like he liked her type either. So after he died, she got sent to a nunnery. To like be a nun for the rest of her life because like no but no other man could touch her because like she was the emperor's um, concubine. But then, normal people would have given up at that point. She did not. I don't even think I've like I've known another example of this um, one emperor's concubine becoming the next. But no, she when Emperor Taizong was on his deathbed, she had an affair with the crown prince who was closer to her age. So after she got to the nunnery, she wrote a poem reminding the crown prince of, like, the love that they had. And then the crown prince was like, okay, and then she, he took her back to the palace. And then within, like, four years or something, she was made empress. So, like, it really shows you that, you know, picking the right guy for you is the most important. Because, <laughs> like, for sure, for sure, was a more impressive man than Emperor Gaozong, his son. But still, Gaozong was the one who gave her the world. And Taizel just left her in her in his harem for like 12 years. So, like, you have to pick the right man for you. <laughs> that, that's my mo that's <laughs> the most impressive thing. Not, she went through two harem battles. And number three, this was ancient queen in the Shang dynasty called Fu Hao. She was like a warrior queen. There's not a lot known about her, but I just I just like her because, like, um, she's a warrior queen. And then she had um she like led armies to like pacify rebellions and take over kingdoms and then she was like very well respected by her husband and then i think they dug up her tomb and then there was like all sorts of lavish stuff in there and then they were they also found like oracle bones because she died young she died at like 34 or something and then they found oracle bones of like her husband the king constantly asking the spirits whether she was doing well in the underworld Aww. Yeah, it's, there's not a lot known about her, but I like what she represented <laughs> in the, way back in the Shang Dynasty. All
0: right. Uh, Shiran and Ray, thanks so much for coming on China Talk.
2: Okay, man, this, this podcast is going to be so disjointed, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to be fine, I guess. I will trust you and your editing magic.
0: Let's get down to business.
2: A yeah, fool in school for cutting Jim
1: This guy's got him scared to death Hope he doesn't see it right through me Now I really wish that I knew how to swim <laughs> must be split at the coursing river <laughs> With all the force of great